The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Hear now the word of the Lord as it is found in the Acts of the Apostles, the 20th chapter, beginning in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up, dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, it is the Word of God. It is more to be desired. Look at you, Johnny. Oh, it's so good to see y'all. It is the Word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you for this, your Word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, whose promise to us is that he will give us eyes to see that wherein we fail, Jesus on our behalf mildly prevails, for we ask it in his great and glorious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head in the Alpha and Omega. And everybody said, Amen. Acts is a page turner. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times that I have sat down with the book of Acts, started at the very beginning and just uh, worked my way through in one setting as a continuous narrative, which is exactly the way Luke crafted it uh, as the second volume of his two-volume series, Luke and Acts. The Bible is drama, and Acts is no exception. And this scene from the ministry of Paul is at once startling and at the same time rather matter-of-fact in the way that Paul responds to it. The Holy Spirit, who inspired Luke's recounting of this crazy event, is the same Spirit who has much to teach us this morning about three things. One, the priority of preaching. Two, the power of the resurrection. Three, the promise of our future. The priority of preaching, power of the resurrection, and the promise of our future. Now, I I realize that for me uh, as a preacher, to begin a sermon talking about the priority of preaching may seem a little self-serving. I mean, after all, David, haven't you heard of St. Francis of Assisi, who lived from somewhere around 1181 to 1226, who said, preach the word, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words? Only problem is St. Francis never said that. Never said it. It's nowhere in his writings. Whoever did say that, and it gets repeated a lot, should have at least told God who preached the word through, are you ready for this, some 557,837 words when you can combine the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. The Bible makes much of preaching. The Levitical priests in the Old Testament preached the word. Deuteronomy 33, verse 10, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law, and they shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. In other words, preaching has been part of the worship of God from the very beginning. In fact, uh, in the first temple, the, the garden itself, there was preaching. 
God gave his word, and when Adam and Eve rebelled against his word, he preached the gospel to them in Genesis 3.15 with the promise of the seed who crushed the serpent said. That was the proclamation of the gospel. And then in 25 and following, we have the demonstration of the gospel as he covered them with garments of skin, prefiguring blood had to be shed in a fulfillment of what we would later see in Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Ezra and the Levites preached the word. We see in Nehemiah 8, verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Ecclesiastes 1.1, listen to this, the words of the Koheleth in Hebrew, the words of the preacher. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, the prophets, were first and foremost forth-tellers of the word, preachers of the word, rather than foretellers of the future or predictors of the future primarily. They did do that, but they were primarily preachers of the word, preaching the Old Testament law and applying it to the hearts of the rebellious people of God in Israel and Judah. That's why Jeremiah in 14 verse 14 says, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. In other words, that is why in that same book, Jeremiah chapter 3, the Lord promises shepherds who will prophesy, who will preach in his name and will be after his own heart. Shepherds after my own heart who will teach truth. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That's a sermon. It's an expository sermon on the Ten Commandments, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. In Luke chapter 24, he comes along the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he opens the law and the prophets, and he preaches to them everything the Bible says about himself. In John chapter 1, verse 18, where we read of the incarnated word coming to declare to us the inscripturated word, in verse 18, we read that Jesus has come to exagesato in the Greek. We get our word exegete from that, exegesis. Jesus has come to exegete the Father, to expound, to explain, to proclaim the Father for us. We see preaching in the book of Acts, chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. Peter gets up and he preaches. Are you ready for this? Joel, chapter 2, 28 to 32. Psalm, chapter 16, verses 8 to 10. And Psalm 110.1. He combines those Old Testament texts into a sermon that he preaches about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Same book, chapter 7. Stephen gets up and preaches and it costs him his life. He's stoned to death for preaching a sermon and we read there in Acts chapter 7, verses 58 to 8, 1, his assailants lay their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul, giving hearty approval to his death. You turn the page, chapter 9, Saul, now Paul, is knocked off of his horse and told, you too are going to be a preacher. And last week, we were in chapter 19, verses 21 to 41, and Paul's preaching of the gospel caused a massive riot. The crowd would have torn him limb from limb. So much does this world system hate the gospel and the followers of the way. Scripture itself is a preacher. Did you know that? 
Scripture itself calls itself a preacher, Galatians 3, verse 8. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. The whole book of Hebrews is a sermon. The entire book of Hebrews is an expository sermon. In fact, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 413 is an exposition of Psalm 95. Now, why do I begin with a smattering, a heavy smattering of biblical testimony to the priority of preachers and preaching in the life of the church. Well, let's humbly sit at the feet of voices from our collective past. Richard Baxter, lived from 1615 to 91, said, the whole of our ministry must be carried on in tender love to our people. We must let them see that nothing pleaseth us but what profiteth them, and that what doeth them good doth us good, and that nothing troubleth us more than their hurt. We must feel toward our people as a father toward his children. Yea, the tenderest love of a mother must not surpass ours. We must even travail in birth till Christ be formed in them. John Owen, who lived from 16 16 to 83, said, The first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. It is a promise relating to the New Testament that God would give unto his church pastors according to his own heart, which should feed them with knowledge and understanding, Jeremiah 3, 15. This is by teaching or preaching the word and no otherwise. This feeding is of the essence of a pastor as in the exercise of it, so that he who doth not or cannot or will not feed the flock is no pastor, whatever outward call or work he may have in the church. Jonathan Edwards, who lived from 1709, uh, 1703 rather to 58, says a minister is set to be a light to men's souls by teaching or doctrine. And if he be a shining light in this respect, the light of his doctrine must be bright and full. It must be pure without mixtures of darkness, and therefore he must be sound in the faith, not one that is of a reprobate mind. In doctrine he must show uncorruptness, otherwise his light will be darkness. He must not lead his people into errors, but teach them the truth only, guiding their feet into the way of peace and leading them in the right ways of the Lord. Finally, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who lived from 1834 to 92, that great London Baptist prince of preachers, says how diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, preacher, you are God's sword, his instrument. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And that was Paul, preeminently Paul. And whatever Paul was preaching upon, we know all of the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts focused on the gospel in the Old Testament, Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and then a call to faith repentance. These sermons got them stoned and imprisoned. They were not tame preachers preaching tame sermons about a tame Savior producing tame saints unwilling and unprepared to suffer for the name of Christ. That said, Luke who was actually present for this dramatic event, we see that in verse 7, admitted Paul went long. Now, this has been a source of comfort for preachers throughout the centuries when they get chided for preaching long sermons. Now, I've never 
been criticized for that. But I know other preachers who have. Even Paul went long sometimes, and we as preachers, we will look at even Paul went long. And then somebody's there, somebody's ready to say, yeah, but you're not Paul, baby. You're not Paul. Check yourself. When I was at Covenant Theological Seminary back in the mid-90s, my uh, church history professor, Dr. David Calhoun, a gracious man of God now with the Lord, he was from South Carolina, and when he would uh, speak, he had this just, it's like caramel, his voice, and he would talk about the apostle Paul. He was really slow and it was just like caramel, just like molasses. He preached very slowly. Nobody's ever criticized me for that either. But anyway, <laughs> he would go over to Africa to do missions work. And he says one time he goes over to Africa and he's preaching a sermon. He said, I preached for about 35, 40 minutes. And I finished my sermon, I prayed and I sat down. And a couple of the African elders came over and they whispered in my ear, sir, why'd you sit down? And he said, well, I finished my sermon. And they said, you only went about 40 minutes. We didn't come here to leave. And they said, do you have another sermon? And he said, that's the only sermon I had. And so they said, would you get up and preach that one again? And so he got up and re-preached the same sermon because they wanted to hear exposition. A couple of months ago, I had the privilege of uh, preaching in the pulpit of Dr. Derek Thomas at First Presbyterian in Columbia. Dr. Thomas uh, succeeded Dr. Sinclair Ferguson in the pulpit there And uh, Dr. Thomas says this about this text. Even so, since Paul went on until midnight, we assume that he had been speaking for several hours. Some estimate four to five hours. Unusual as this may be in some parts of the West, it is not at all unusual in certain other parts of the world where services can continue for several hours. It is only in our highly time-conscious soundbite world the Holy Spirit is restricted to 25 or 30 minutes. Whatever we make of this, and this was not necessarily a customary pattern of the church in Philippi or of the pattern of the Apostle Paul himself, we must conclude that there was at Philippi a remarkable thirst for the Word of God, so much so that it appears that the upper room in which they met was so crowded that at least young, one young man was sitting on the window ledge. This is evidence of the Spirit's work, creating a longing for the Word of God. They were eager to know more of Jesus Christ. They wished to be instructed in the faith. There will not be any great reformation in our churches or our personal lives if such a thirst is absent. If we are content to hear one sermon a week lasting 20 minutes, then we are displaying a condition of spiritual sickness. Unless we cultivate an appetite for the exposition of Scripture, we will never grow as Christians. Instead of being a those who are always wanting less exposition. We should be among those always desiring more. Here's the point, and it's a point that's easy to miss if we don't pay close attention to the text. As staggering as is the miracle that is about to occur, and we'll get to that, Paul's priority, listen, is on the means of grace. In this case, the word and sacrament. For right after this stupendous miracle, He went immediately back to break bread. In other words, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which took place in the the context of a fellowship meal. He went immediately back to break bread, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to break bread, and then continued to teach, are you ready for this, until daybreak. The priority of preaching. But let's be honest. We're all here because of this incredible miracle, right? We're, We're waiting to hear about the power of the resurrection. Now, I'm going to come in clutch for y'all. I'm about to come in clutch, all right? John Butterworth, next time you're playing a game of Bible trivia, 
You're going to thank me for this, all right? I'm about to come in clutch for you. Next time any of you all are playing a game of Bible trivia, and somebody comes to you, and it's your turn, and they say, John Butterworth, what was the young man's name who fell out of that window when Paul was preaching long? You're going to say his name was Eutychus. Now, you don't need to write that down. You're going to remember it from this point on. You know why you're going to remember it? You know why you're going to remember his name was Eutychus? Because you'd have cussed too if you'd have fallen out a window. I'm here all day, folks. <laughs> Make sure and tip your waiter on the way out. Now, I know what some of y'all are thinking right now. You're thinking, okay, David, you just, you, you're not Paul. Dude, you better be glad there's some guardrails on the balcony so nobody falls asleep and falls out from the balcony while you're preaching. Uh, in fact, I was told earlier, somebody came after second service, they said, David, no, nobody is going to uh, suffer falling asleep while you preach. We may suffer whiplash, but not falling asleep. <laughs> Luke mentions many lamps. Heat is rising, consuming oxygen. It's getting late, and Paul is just getting going. I actually had a young boy fall asleep in one of my sermons. He was on the front row, a church I planted many years ago. He was around the front row, and... Um, he was nodding off. His mom would wake him up, and finally in the middle of my sermon, just this loud thud as he fell asleep, collapsed right out of the front of his chair, right onto the floor. Thud, hit the floor. Everybody laughed. His mom laid hands on him later. But falling three stories, I mean, all joking aside, can you imagine the horror of his parents? Can you imagine the shock that went through the church? In this context, this young man's tragic death would have cut all of them to the quick because he belonged to all of them in a sense. Such was community life then. And the miracle of raising dead men to life is actually a relatively rare occurrence in Scripture, all things considered. And, and please understand this. Miracles are never an end in and of themselves. They're not party tricks. The apostles, which, by the way, do not exist today, people will claim that they are apostles biblically, the apostolic office, there were three requirements. You had to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. You had to be appointed by Christ and imbued with miraculous power by the Holy Spirit. They are plenipotentiaries of their master, imbued with the power of their master to carry out his will. And when miracles occur, and just so you know, there are three periods of the miraculous in Scripture. During the time of Moses, during the time of the prophets, which include Elijah, Elisha, and the writing prophets, and during the time of Jesus and the apostles. When miracles occurred at the hands of people imbued with power, miracles still occur today, but there aren't miracle workers. Jesus is the miracle worker today. Miracles occur, but when people were uniquely imbued with this prophetic, priestly, apostolic power, it was during the time of the scripture. And when they would perform a miracle, whether it was a prophet or Jesus or an apostle, they performed a miracle to confirm the word, which is just what we're seeing in this story, is always primary. Now, there are five instances in the New Testament of a dead person being raised to life. Matthew 9, 18 to 26, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. John 11, 1 to 46, he raises Lazarus from the grave. Luke 7, 11 to 15, he raises the son of the widow of Nain. Acts 9, 36 to 43, Peter raises the young girl Dorcas to life. And now we have in a scene similar to what you see in the life of the prophet Elijah. 1 Kings 17, 17 to 24, where Elijah goes and he lays his body atop 
of the son of the widow of Zarephath and brings him back to life. Or in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 33 to 36, Elisha goes and, and lays his body on top of the dead son of the Shunammite woman and brings him back to life. Paul rushes down to the ground and he lifts up this young man, taking him in his arm. He draws him close to himself. He presses in upon him and resurrection power courses through this young man as Cells are repaired as fractures are healed. Uh, bones are knit back together. Organs that are crushed from the blunt force trauma of the fall are knit back together. The bleeding is stopped. Life courses through him and the kingdom breaks in. And there's a trailer to the movie of what you and I are going to experience at the great and last day when our bodies are raised from death to life. And everyone is shocked. Everyone is amazed. What you have here, beloved, is a resurrection ripple effect, not originating with the Apostle Paul, listen carefully, but originating with the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, Hebrews 3.1, who is Jesus Christ, whose resurrection is a power that death cannot withstand. Hebrews 2, 10 to 18, Jesus came to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of us who through our fear of death were held in lifelong bondage. So whether the Shunammite woman's son or Lazarus or Dorcas, raisings are divinely ordained ripple effects of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. They are inbreakings of the kingdom, putting death on notice that one day, as we see in Revelation 21, verse 4, death shall be no more and never again shall there be sorrow or crying or pain, for the former things are past and gone, and God shall wipe away every tear from your eye. C.S. Lewis, 1898 to 1963, I don't know where I would be without C.S. Lewis. In The Four Loves, he contrasts the grief that we feel at the death of our loved ones here with what awaits us in our reunion with them and what he calls the land of the Trinity. In heaven there will be no anguish and no duty of turning away from our earthly beloveds. First, because we shall have turned away already from the portraits to the original, from the rivulets to the fountain, from the creatures he made lovable to love himself. But secondly, because we shall find them all in him. By loving him more than them, we shall love them more than we do now. But all that is far away in the land of the Trinity. Not here in exile in the weeping valley, down here it is all lost and renunciation, the very purpose of bereavement here, so far as it affects ourselves, may have been to force this upon us. In other words, the purpose in the Lord's providence, in our grief, in our sorrow, in our heartbreak over the reality of death, is to cause us to hope. Paul says that we, are, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We are called to hopeful, hope-filled grieving. If you grieve over death, if you, if you are in bereavement, if you grieve over the loss of a loved one, that honors the Lord. That itself is an act of worship. But we grieve hopefully. Why? Because of the promise of our future. The promise of our future. And to understand the promise of our future, we have to understand what is promised to us in the present. May I close this sermon, which I hope, hasn't gone too terribly long. May I close this sermon with a little theology, a little doctrine about you? May I tell you something about you from your Bibles, 
I had a guy tell me one time, yeah, David, all that theology, that may be good for you, but I've never been hugged by doctrine. I have. I have. As Charles Spurgeon, that great London Baptist Prince of Preachers, I said earlier, right, good doctrine like the sovereignty of God, that's a soft bed and pillow to lay our head on at night. I've been hugged by good theology. I want to hug you now with some good theology about yourself. Maybe you're sitting here and you say, well, David, I don't think that I'm in danger of falling asleep and falling out the balcony. And anyway, if I do, maybe I'll land on somebody soft. So if any of you are going to fall out of the balcony, you might want to go ahead and look where it would be easier to land. And to some of you down here, you need to, you need to be ready to catch if anybody falls out of the balcony. Maybe, maybe you're not going to f- fall out of the balcony, but maybe you've just fallen away. You've just fallen away from the Lord, and your heart is just numb and cold and recalcitrant. Uh, maybe, you know, you've just been, you know, licking the salt block of your idols, hoping it will satisfy your thirst, and you're just wandering from the Lord, and you just feel so dry, and, and you, you think, the Lord's pieced out on me, or I've pieced out on the Lord, one of the two. You've just fallen away. Jesus, John 10.10, 10, offers you the abundant not the redundant life. Listen, I'm going I'm to go through this slowly here because I want you to get this down. Ephesians 1, 19 to 2, 10, and Colossians 3, 1 to 4, Paul tells us this. The Father has raised you and seated you with Christ by virtue of Christ's resurrection and by the same Spirit by which he raised Christ from the dead. Resurrection power is now coursing through you in newness of spiritual life. The Trinity has conspired to bring about your salvation. That's why J.I. Packer says the Trinity is the basis of the gospel and the gospel is a declaration of the Trinity in action. Listen, this is what is true. This is what is true, resurrection power coursing through you. And, and Lewis goes on to say, and that is precisely what Christianity is about. This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are statues, and there's a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. Here's the good news. If you are in Christ, you have been brought from death to life, from darkness to light. According to Ezekiel 36 and 37, your heart of stone was taken away, and you were given a heart of flesh. Your no heart was taken away, and you were given a yes heart. Your lips were touched so that you can taste the sweetness of Jesus. Your eyes were opened to see the beauty of Christ, and you like him, you love him, you want some more of him. He has changed your heart, and resurrection power is coursing through you. Imagine if you begin to see yourself that way. Imagine if husbands, you saw your wives that way. Wives, you saw your husbands that way. Imagine if we started seeing one another that way. If we would live among one another, relating to each other, forgiving, repenting before one another as if this was really who we are. You are already resurrection people awaiting the not yet of the resurrection of the body. You're already resurrected spiritually. You are awaiting the resurrection of your bodies on the great and last day. How do I know it's going to happen? Because of the resurrection ripple effect. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. Matthew says that when Jesus was crucified, when he died, the ground shook. And the, 
and the temple veil that separated the people from the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies was torn asunder and dropped to the floor. That's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, let us hold unswerving to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is at all points tempted, even as are we, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach boldly the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And Matthew goes on to say, that when Jesus rose from the grave, are you ready for this? When he rose from the grave, the graves of the saints opened up and some of the saints got up out of the grave and walked back into Jerusalem as a testimony to the resurrection of Christ. He doesn't go on to explain it. He just drops that little mic right there and keeps going. It's a resurrection ripple effect. The, the power surge that is the resurrection of Jesus. There was an inbreaking of it in chapter 20. It's already happened to you and me spiritually. It's going to happen to us physically. How do I know? Romans chapter 8, Paul says that all the cosmos, all the world has been affected by the sin of David Filson. And it's groaning under the pains of childbirth awaiting our adoption as daughters and sons. Paul says our adoption as daughters and sons, the resurrection of our bodies. In other words, already you are adopted daughters and sons. Not yet have you experienced the final glorious phase of your adoption, which will be seen in the resurrection of your body. And when that happens, there will be a resurrection ripple effect, and the cosmos is going to be renewed. And so that is the hope of our future. How do I know? Because of what Paul promises us in 1 Corinthians 15. And I've had the inestimable privilege many times of walking with so many of y'all at sick beds and deathbeds and gravesides to be able to share with you that which I never tire of sharing, that Christian burial is not the disposal of anything. It, it's a deposit of something precious for safekeeping. It's a resurrection deposit because Jesus has promised to make a resurrection withdrawal of that very body bringing it up to life. That, that's why our own confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, says that the bodies of believers are still united to Christ. When we go to the cemetery, we are not standing ultimately on burial ground, but on resurrection ground. As that old Presbyterian Southern theologian James Henley Thornwell said, the Holy Spirit guards the bodies of believers to the great day of resurrection. Please understand, when we go to the cemetery, that is not an acquiescence to death. That is a faith-filled defiance of death because of the reality of the resurrection. The sting of death, the sting of the grave has been taken away. So what is to be our response to this sermon that I'm about to bring in under 30 minutes? You just look at me. What's the response to be? May I build upon the words of the true and greater Koheleth, the true and greater preacher. Hear the words of the true Koheleth, the true preacher, the true son of David, the true king of Jerusalem, I have raised you spiritually and I will raise you bodily. And as a sign of that promise, come on, let's break bread together.